Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. We're going to explore world healing through medicine today for Spirit in Action, particularly healing from trauma and the resources that acupuncture and Asian medicine add to the possibilities in that work. Our guest is Elaine Duncan. Integrative Healing Works is her practice, and her new book is The Tao of Trauma, a practitioner's guide for integrating five-element theory and trauma treatment. Elaine's study began in the area of Western medicine, and she added to her healing repertoire after experiencing the benefits of Asian medicine approaches. We've had Elaine here before on Spirit in Action, after I heard her speak at a Quaker gathering about doing fruitful work and getting rid of unnecessary walls and harmful attitudes, going into Walter Reed Medical Center and the VA Hospital, working as a peace person allied in the center of the military medical system. Today, we'll be talking primarily about the techniques of healing and the concepts around them coming from Taoist and Asian thought. We have production help today by Andrew Jansen, as Elaine Duncan joins us via Skype from Hyattsville, Maryland, just outside Washington, D.C. Elaine, welcome back to Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. Been 10 years. I looked at the date. I'm always some thinking of you, and occasionally I've talked to you and to Rob, but it's been 10 years. How long did the writing of the book, The Tao of Trauma, take in those 10 years? In some ways, it took the entire 10 years because the thinking that I present kind of evolved over those 10 years. The actual sitting down with metaphoric pencil in hand was probably two years. And what part did Kathy Kane play in that writing? She was kind of a, an editor and a thoughtful guide. She's published other books and has uh, an advisor to me. She actually made the introduction between North Atlantic Books and me to get the contract for the book and was you know, just a wonderful advisor, guide, sound check kind of person. Again, the name of the book with the complete subtitle is The Tao of Trauma, A Practitioner's Guide for Integrating Five-Element Theory and Trauma Treatment. And I hope everybody has memorized those words by now. Before we go into the full scale of that, I want to revisit our interview from 10 years ago, where I was first exposed to some of the work you're doing already with the VA hospital with Walter Reed Center. Let's step back even further than that. You're working with kidney dialysis. You prick yourself with a needle that's got hepatitis C. You get hepatitis C, part of that journey Western medicine at that time has no good solution to hepatitis C. You get significant relief from acupuncture. Okay, so here's the whole story. <laughs> I actually was stuck with a needle as a kidney dialysis technician in 1978. For the next 25 years, until 2003, I had intermittent bouts of debilitating weakness and fatigue and elevated liver enzymes from hepatitis C. In 2003, I took interferon and ribavirin and eliminated the virus. Throughout those 25 years, 
from 83 to 2003, I was receiving acupuncture treatment and it kind of helped keep me alive, keep me functioning, keep me managing the impact of the hepatitis. And then I finally was able to eliminate it when science developed to a point where in 2003, I could take interferon and ribavirin and fully eliminate it. But because of that, you got connected with acupuncture, which was helping you out significantly. And then you started studying acupuncture. Right. It was my own experience with acupuncture that started in 1983 that led me to start acupuncture training in 1988 and graduate in 1990. So one of the things I was wondering about was how strong was your science background before that? You were a kidney dialysis technician. How steeped in it were you by that point? I actually, my, my undergraduate work, I started with a major in physical therapy and took all the biology and chemistry and physics classes. And then I switched my major to something they called family services, which was kind of an interdisciplinary undergraduate social work degree. So when I landed in acupuncture school, I actually had two legs of the stool pretty well under my belt between uh, Western science and, you know, kind of relationship healing skills that I brought to it and then developed the Chinese understanding of physiology as my third leg. I note a very clear element. I don't think that you are a psychotherapist per se, but it's very clear that there are the skills that I would hope that a psychotherapist would have that you have. Does that make sense to you? Well, you know, Chinese medicine is different from Western medicine in the sense that it's not so compartmentalized. In the traditional times in China, people went to the, the acupuncturist or the, the doctor for body, mind, and spirit. They didn't separate out, I have a spiritual question, I'll go to the clergy, and I have a mental or cognitive problem, I'm going to go to the psychotherapist. It was the, the body, the mind, and the spirit are an integrated whole. So our training is in observing the movement of energy as it manifests across the full dimension of being a human being. Again, folks, we're speaking with Elaine Duncan, author of The Tao of Trauma, and it's something of a glimpse so people who are approaching from Western medicine point of view can also find its equivalent balance and additional resources from Eastern, from in the particularly Taoist tradition, how to work with trauma. I would say, or I've been told, that The Tao of Trauma is the first book that integrates Western neurobiology with acupuncture and Asian medicine. So it's kind of a first of its kind. It was born out of this early passion I had back in 2003 or four to serve the young service members who were coming home from the war, some of them unable to live with what they'd been asked to do and, and had been exposed to see. And it just kind of picked up my heart and uh, broke it in half, broke it in two. And I said, I have to do something about this. And that's when I got started working in, in military settings. And, and then over the last 10 years, that kind of passion has grown to embrace the impact of trauma on children and infants and how that manifests in their morbidity and mortality as adults. And in virtually every public health concern from addiction and autoimmune illness to cardiac and pulmonary and sleep and digestive disturbance that leave their a profound mark on both the budget for public health and the health of our communities. And then it expanded even more to the impact that traumatic stress that our parents, our grandparents, or even our great grandparents experienced and how that leaves an imprint 
through our genetic changes that occur as a result of trauma on how we function today, here and now, as a result of experiences that up to three generations behind us. So it became quite a fascinating journey, and even up to current times, where, in my opinion, our national discourse is influenced by our ability to recognize safety and threat and to make meaningful choices that include relationship and safety and care for all members of our community. And that is profoundly impacted by the impact of trauma. How we behave in the ballot box is also influenced by how we heal from these experiences of traumatic stress. So the healing is central here. And however you get to healing, as you mentioned already, Elaine, you experienced healing along the way with acupuncture. Asian medicine was helping you out but the eventual eradication of hepatitis C was achieved with Western science. So some people tend to think in either ors. I assume you're not anti-Western medicine and just pro-Eastern medicine. I assume both of them have their place. Absolutely. I, I often say that we're fortunate to live in a time and a place where we have the gifts of Western medicine and the wisdom of Eastern medicine to make use of in an integrative fashion that really everyone's better when, when every opportunity is made use of. And folks, you can check out more information. Integrativehealingworks.net is Elaine Duncan's website. She has a blog on there that you can check out. She has courses coming up. Uh, you can find connection to her book, The Tao of Trauma, on there. You can get it other places as well, of course. But you have a course coming up particularly on January 26, 27, 2019. What's that course going to be about? That course is going to basically use the text, The Tao of Trauma, as a reference book. It's a course that's open to acupuncturists and to somatic experiencing practitioners, students, and people with similar training as the somatic experiencing program offers. It will teach interaction, observation, and touch skills related to the self-protective response and how it can get, when it isn't allowed to fully complete, can leave behind either brace or collapsed states in our tissue memory in our organs, in our functional capacities, and how to help people move through those missing parts and transform those states in their tissues to allow better functioning, more whole people. And where will that be taking place? In Silver Spring, Maryland. So again, that course is going to be January 26, 27, 2019. Go to Elaine Duncan's website, integrativehealingworks.net. The link, of course, as always, is on northernspiritradio.org. The uh, January 26th and 27th module is the first of five modules that go through the five seasons of the year that the Chinese describe. They describe five, not four, just dividing the pie a little bit differently. And each one of those courses will explore a discrete step in the self-protective response. This fellow named Peter Levine the developer of the somatic experiencing trauma training model, did animal predator-prey relationship studies way back when. And what he figured out is that for both two-legged and four-legged animals, in order for us to successfully navigate life, that we have to go through certain steps when confronted by a threat. We have to be able to recognize that something is new in our environment. We need to be able to discern whether it's safe or unsafe, danger or safe. 
We need to be able to ask for and secure help from others. We need to mobilize a response that's commensurate with the level of the perceived stress. We need to recognize when the stress is over that it's done. And we need to digest the gristle that may remain behind from that experience and harvest the lessons that are inherent in it. The ancient Taoists would agree that this same cycle of five steps is inherent in the agricultural cycle. It's inherent in the creation of a human life, inherent in any organization or development of any being. So we'll go through those five steps through the course of the year in their season. For example, this course in January is called Signaling Threat, and it's about being able to perceive safety and threat and being able to accurately determine when we're safe and when we're not safe. And for someone particularly who experienced early, early trauma, they may be consumed by a constant state of threat, which impacts their kidney adrenal system, constantly secreting adrenaline and creating an experience of constant threat in their body and in their mind and spirit. That results in a shorter life expectancy, greater propensity towards brittle bones in old age, a loss of hearing, early aging. And that kind of fear response will consume the frontal cortex, the more thoughtful, relational frontal part of the brain. And we end up making decisions based on a sense of impending and constant threat instead of making decisions based on relationship and safety. So restoring regulation to the kidney adrenal system is absolutely critical to our national discourse, to being able to recognize safety in people who are different from ourselves, to be able to welcome friendships across differences, and to be able to rest into our own safety and sleep at night instead of feeling agitated and anxious and unable to rest. So those are some things that you're going to learn via the course. I mean, you can read about them already in the book, The Tao of Trauma. But if you are part of the workshop, the course that Elaine Duncan is going to be providing, you can enrich and further deepen and, and get some hands-on experience. I mean, in the book, for instance, Elaine, you describe how you can hold a kidney, how you do that physically. Right. And I'm still having a little trouble picturing it. I can imagine in the course, taking that with you, just having a little guidance about where that actually physically positions over the body would make a tremendous difference. Right. The kidney adrenal hold is probably the most useful approach for survivors of any type and of any experience. You can have someone either laying on a treatment table, a massage table, or sitting in a chair and sliding your hand kind of at the base of their rib cage at their back and bringing your, the eyes that are in your hand into attention to this organ, this kind of dense, rounded oval of the kidney and just holding it almost as if it's a, an infant and bringing comfort and attention and it will sink and settle into your hand. You'll begin to feel a pulse moving through it and as it sinks, it will lift off of the diaphragm, the respiratory diaphragm. People will often take a nice deep breath. They'll sink and settle more deeply onto the table or into the chair. A different neurological platform will emerge where instead of feeling anxious and afraid, they feel peaceful and quiet. And from there, they're able to heal that trauma memory that's in their tissues. So we're going to go into some more of that detail 
I did want to start with a couple pieces that may not be innate to the listeners of Spirit in Action. One of them is what we actually call trauma, because not every event which is disagreeable results in trauma, and you differentiate between tolerable and toxic or traumatic stress. Could you spell that out for our listeners? Yeah, I would say that traumatic stress, an easy definition is too much too fast. Too much for our nervous system to respond to in a thoughtful way happening too fast. And so often if we can help a client just slow their story down, it will help them integrate their experience. There's this whole very fascinating dialogue around resiliency. And people who have a little bit of stress and get a chance to experience themselves successfully navigating that stress grow their capacity for resiliency. They're able to manage the next stress that comes along with greater capacity. But people who have too much too fast happen repeatedly. For instance, if they, as an infant, required a surgical procedure or they were required to be in an incubator for an extended period of time and didn't receive nurturing touch, or as an adult, perhaps they were in military service and there was an explosive device that went off here and then another one and then another one after that, another one after that. And they didn't even have a chance for their ears or their eyes to see or hear where this one came from before another one was demanding all their sensory attention. And that kind of repeated too much too fast is overwhelming to the neurological system. We can't keep track. And so we're prone if we can't successfully mobilize a response, another example would be a, a hurricane or a tornado or a forest fire like we've seen out in California recently. If we can't mobilize a response, all we can do is shut down. So we get this message that there's a threat and our kidney sends off this message with adrenaline up to our heart to tell our heart there's danger in the kingdom of the body. The heart will send out the message to the whole kingdom via the pulse via the heart pulse, and it'll be pounding and fast and hard, and it will command the whole system to respond. But if the kidney doesn't again find safety once it's survived, the heart can't keep up that pace and remain alive. So it has to shut down. So it gets this message that the psychotherapist might call dissociation, neurologists might call a collapse, in order to protect the heart. So they'll turn into something like a possum that goes to sleep quote-unquote, sleep when they experience a threat, and their predator will think, well, maybe they're dead, then maybe they're rotten meat, I won't eat them, you know, or they're certainly not very interesting, there's not going to be any tussle here, I'm not going to bother, it's no fun. It's part of our repair mechanism to have a capacity to shut down and collapse, it's part of our survival instinct, but long-term, it's not so helpful to be shut down and frozen. We need to wake that back up again in order to function in life. You know, I've actually seen a possum do that right on my front sidewalk. There was a dog standing over the possum. The possum looked dead, sleeping, whatever you call it. And the dog goes away, and I saw the possum pop up and take off. I think that maybe possums have a better regulated system so that the trauma doesn't stay with them. They can wake up from it and go right on. People evidently don't do that so well. Right. Although we have the same mechanisms to move through a trauma experience and to restore regulation, the difference is that we have a very large frontal cortex. So we might trip and fall down a few stairs in a public place, 
And rather than take some moments down there on the ground to notice, I don't see a fox, I don't uh, smell a fox, I don't hear a fox, there must be no fox, I'm safe. Or in the case of falling downstairs, gosh, I fell downstairs. Let me check and see, is my hip okay? Yeah, I think my hip's okay. My back's okay. I don't see any blood. Yeah, I think I'm okay. I'm safe. So to take that time to assimilate, I'm safe before moving into action, before moving into behavior. So if we bypass that absorption of I'm safe and just go straight into activity, we haven't given our body a chance to catch up with the experience of the threat, the harvest, the lessons in. We're going to go into a lot more detail about this in our interview with Elaine Duncan, author of The Tao of Trauma, in just a moment. But first, remember, you are listening to Spirit in Action. NorthernSpiritRadio.org is our website with now 13 and a half years of our programs. Ten years ago, we interviewed Elaine, specifically talking about bringing peace to war. It's an interview well worth listening to. She's done such valuable work for so many years now, and we're getting the fruits of it in the book, The Tao of Trauma. But on northernspiritradio.org, you'll find links to that previous interview, to integrativehealingworks.net, other ways that you can connect with Elaine and all of our other guests of the past years. There's a place to post comments. I can't stress this strongly enough. Please post a comment when you visit. We need two-way communication. Also, there's a donate button. This is full-time work, and actually it's another person part-time who do this work because we really want to improve the world. We're working on the healing of the world just as Elaine Duncan is. We try and do it by lifting up your voices, donate, and help us make it possible for all these other people doing this good work in the world. Support, first of all, though, your local community radio station, the kind of folks who carry this program. You can always listen to us on the net, but it's so wonderful that it's going to the ears of many people across the United States. Support your local community radio station, and then help out Northern Spirit Radio if you can. Again, Elaine Duncan, IntegrativeHealingWorks.net is her site. Read her blog, sign up for her courses. There's online courses as well. There's a number of ways you can avail yourself of the wisdom and skills that Elaine Duncan is sharing with the world. We were just talking about trauma, and there were a couple things about that, Elaine, that I wanted to explore with you. We were talking about how a possum doesn't carry trauma in the same way we do. and It has to do with the way our brains are built, right? But it also is different in terms of how we are trained to think about things. So I know that talk therapy has some role in it. After all, my wife is a psychotherapist. I know that she deals with people with trauma. But there's portions of it which are very resistant to talk therapy. I was just talking to someone last night who said, when you said this, I was traumatized. I could see very clearly that his trauma was related to the way that he thinks about things, the worldview that he has. And I think in some places in the world, people are not traumatized by the same things that you and I, coming from the United States and with the cultural background we have here. Is there a difference in trauma formation that we can observe by different cultures around the world? It's an interesting thing to think about. Where I was going to go first when you started talking was that trauma is mediated by our hindbrain, by our brain stem. And all the structures that come alive when we feel threatened are back in the hindbrain. The more 
thoughtful parts of us, the parts that can remember stories and process thoughts, that's in the frontal cortex, in the front part of the brain. So when we're overwhelmed by a sense of threat, that hindbrain takes our frontal cortex hostage. So we become unable to have a thoughtful response when our brainstem is sending out fire alarms that say threat, threat, threat. We can't pause. We can't pause and and consider thoughtfully. We just feel frightened for our own survival. That's one important distinction and why exclusively talk therapy without anchoring the experience in the body and in the sensate awareness will have trouble bringing a trauma survivor all the way home to completion of a sense of, of threat. That's one thing. I think that certainly people who experience threat as small children, like I referred to earlier, will be triggered by different things than people who didn't experience threat as a small child. The more resilient we can make, and there's wonderful research on this in the Adverse Childhood Experiences Research at the Centers for Disease Control, that's able to link everything from addiction and autoimmune illness and cancer and obesity and suicidality and mental health, all of these things can be linked to loss of a parent, early hospitalization, physical abuse, surgeries, all these kinds of things, abuse in the home, addiction in the home, violence in the home, things like that actually influence morbidity and mortality rates through adulthood and uh, life expectancy. So I think those things are actually more important than geography. Although I suspect that there are countries and certainly lifestyles in different countries that give children a greater sense of safety and connection and relationship than some parts of the United States and some parts of probably every modern culture. But the most critical thing that we can do for transforming the impact of trauma is to create safe relationships for children in every community. I don't know if this is going to be a countering of what you're saying or an extension to it, but one of the words that you used in this is you said that the front of the brain is where we have our stories, right? And then when the hindbrain takes control, there's no more developing of the story or modifying of it. What it occurred to me as I was reading through the Tao of Trauma, a practitioner's guide for integrating five-element theory and trauma treatment, is that Asian medicine and this specifically coming from Taoist tradition in China, it is working by metaphor. So there's metaphors in terms of the seasons, in terms of metal, water, wood, fire, and earth, the five elements, that these are metaphors that are being used as part of your therapy. And a metaphor is the front brain. (laughs) So the story that we have with respect to our elements and our healing I think this either enables or disables the brainstem from achieving its healing, the somatic. So there's some kind of an interaction between story and somatic experiencing that is part of this healing. Did I say that okay? Does that make sense to you? Well, I think the thing about the five elements, and you articulate it beautifully, is they exist as resonant frameworks. So in our Western mind, we think of these, you know, water, wood, fire, earth, and metal as sort of static substances. But in the Asian mind, they're much more fluid and relational. For instance, since we're talking about the upcoming class in the water element, the water element is emblematic of the winter. Its organ is the kidney. 
It's tissue are the bones and the, the brain stem and spinal cord. It's a sea of marrow. The emotion fear. So there's this sort of dynamic complex of resonant states that are really an energetic statement that come along with these. Sometimes the five elements are described as the five phases. It's probably a better translation, actually, to refer to them as phases than elements because there's more movement and less static expression in calling them phases rather than elements. Hmm. So this this linking of story or images, I think that the brain stem, the, the back part of the brain, thinks in more primitive images as opposed to you know, Newton's laws of motion, it gets a little bit more basic. And so if you can step back to those things, you have a better chance of communicating with the body's experience. Exactly, exactly. And those sensate experiences, we need to access those sensate experiences in order to sort of wake up that hindbrain that's holding a a major clutch on the functioning of the rest of our brain. So we start trauma, and then we start looking at how we deal with it. I still feel like, even though I know that somatic means relating to the body, I don't know if there's something missing in Western medicine that we don't talk about somatic, or I I think we don't. Is that true? Well, Western doctors seem to be increasingly looking at their screens on their computers rather than looking at their patients. and looking at uh, lab tests and numbers rather than looking at the experience of the client. So there's a lot of gifts in Western medicine, understanding neurobiology and, and what happens, you know, when adrenaline spikes and cortisol drops and all these things are very helpful to know. But it's the lived experience of the person that's the most important thing in helping someone heal. And I think that's the integrating the Taoist approach of the lived experience of the patient with the hard science from Western medicine is really how to get home in the world of healing is to integrate both those worlds. And again, the work that you've done has included working with Walter Reed Center, with the VA hospital. I think that there's still a significant portion of the population in the United States which doesn't understand that acupuncture and other Asian medicine, that it is accepted medicine, it's not just poetry. Yes, thank you. There's wonderful research that's coming out. I've been a part of some of the studies on the role that acupuncture plays with pain management, with addictions. And I think acupuncture has a powerful potential in the national opioid problem because Acupuncture can both help people with addiction and help people with pain. So we really do need to integrate these other methods into solving the medical problems of our of our times because we can't we can't get all the way home with only western medicine nor can we get all the way home with only eastern medicine. We need both. I hope this isn't a detour, but I think that western medicine with its cut and dried A causes B way of thinking, misses out on some important elements that contribute to healing. Often you talk in Asian medicine, or AAM, acupuncture and Asian medicine, you talk about supporting the healing as opposed to causing the healing. Asian medicine is more 
I think is tuned to the fact that within ourselves there is potential for healing if resources are enhanced and addressed, supported. Mark, that's a beautiful interpretation that you just made. I, I would assert that our bodies are hardwired to respond to threat. We don't use our frontal cortex to decide whether we're going to fight or we're going to flee or we're going to collapse. That comes out of an organic knowing that our body dictates for us to help us survive. And similarly, our bodies are hardwired to recover organization, regulation, and balance after threat. They just need some support to do what they're hardwired to do. So one of my thoughts was, I think in the Western world, we still have no idea of where placebo healing comes from. And I'm not talking about people just thinking they're better. I'm talking about some physical manifestation that shows that there's a healing that took place, even though they were giving were given a sugar pill or whatever, that that comes from somewhere. And I I'm really not aware of Western medicine saying, gee, maybe there's a resource there that we're not tapping into. There's a wonderful fellow. His name is Ted Kapchuk. He's at Harvard. He's an acupuncturist. And his sole area of research is the placebo effect. He's done things like compare this placebo acupuncture point to that placebo acupuncture point and looked at the healing that comes when you associate this placebo point with care and concern, and that one with a cold shoulder. So he's been able to say that the placebo effect is really creating relationship with the patient, which Eastern medicine tends to be more relational than Western medicine. And Western medicine would do well to, instead of trying to eliminate relationship as a potential influence on wellness to embrace relationship as an influence in their work. Makes great sense to me to enhance all, use all of these resources that we have available. And and the science is there. That is to to say the statistics, the measures are there. One piece that I have less sense of, and in fact, I think that to some degree, even though I'm a dancer, which means I love being in my body. I feel things in my body when I dance that tell me that there's something crucial to me in the, in the middle there. I'm also scientifically trained. I've taught physics at university level, et cetera. And, and I've been a computer programmer consultant. And, you know, you program the computer A, B, C. It's all very logical, right? So I've got both parts in my experience. But when you speak of observing energy, when you the chi, when you observe that, or you, you're trying to measure po, or the, these other measures of internal, uh, the the I don't know how it's pronounced, the hun, all of these things. When you talk about observing energy, how do you do that? Is there a measure? Can it be measured on a dial, as well as within your hands or heart or? I don't know how observing energy happens. I haven't been able to do that yet, I think. Well, I think you probably do, actually, Mark. I think when you meet someone, and the answer is no, there's no dial. But I think that when you meet, uh, particularly as a dancer, when you dance in a partner dance and you feel a sense of fluid connection, that you could say that there's a coherent vibration between you and your dancing partner. And you probably recognize that as different 
from when you feel stumbly or awkward and out of relationship or, or coherence with your dancing partner, that you can recognize regulation and dysregulation in yourself and in another person. Am I right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I sometimes, when I have intuitions of things, and of course, you and I are both Quakers, so we're used to reaching towards something that's not just front of the brain thinking, right? We're, we're used to accessing something that is additional and it underlies everything. So I, I'm used to going to that place as well as being a hard scientist, as some people might describe it. So do you find both of those parts in your brain when you're working with a client? And by the way, folks, in the Tao of Trauma, when Elaine Duncan is talking about her work with the five elements and trauma treatment, when she's talking about that, she frequently gives examples of a client. You know, here's where we're dealing with the wood element or the water element, and here's autumn happening. I mean, all of these things are illustrated very richly and vividly in the Tao of Trauma. So if you go to integrativehealingworks.net, the link on nordenspiritradio.org, you'll be able to read and absorb in greater detail than anything we can do in just one hour here. So how do you recognize energy moving in and doing your work? I think it's critical for a provider to be able to recognize energy moving into greater coherence or moving out of greater coherence. It's critical for a provider to develop the sensate awareness for when their client is moving into greater coherence and when their client is moving into greater dysregulation or upset. We want to keep people within a certain zone, a little bit of arousal, a little bit of restoration, a little bit of arousal, a little bit of restoration. And if they're moving too far in either one of those directions, we want to shift our intervention so that we can maintain kind of like a thermostat of going up one or two degrees and then coming down one or two degrees and, and, and moving in a, in a wave form like that. So, for example, in the kidney adrenal hold that we were talking a little bit earlier, for some people, when their kidney starts to move, to settle, to sink, to quiet, it will be so alarming because they feel like the brace in their organs that they've put in place to help them feel safe, that if they let go of that brace response, that they won't be vigilant enough to be safe. So sometimes, most of the time, when I have my hand under someone's kidney, they relax and settle and quiet. Sometimes they'll fall asleep and, you know, it's terrific. But occasionally, they'll feel even more anxious. So then I need to remove my hand and give them some time to find their equanimity again. So really critical to be able to observe arousal and restoration, hyperarousal, collapse. We don't want to go too far into either one of those extremes. So you are used to, with your hands, do you, would you say that you feel it with your hands or do you feel it with other portions of your body? I mean, there's a resonance in your own heart and breathing. Uh, you speak of that in the Tao of Trauma as well. I think I, it's, a, it's kind of multi-sensory awareness. You know, I'm, I'm uh, recognizing muscles getting softer, more even and regular blood flow, more relaxed state, you know, less agitated. And I'm recognizing those things with both my eyes and my hands. 
and really in the in the energetic field in the room, you know, just that I pick up by being in the room with someone. You know, there's one portion of the book, Elaine, I would just be remiss if I didn't address it because it clicked in a place for me. I knew nothing of the vagus nerve before a couple years ago. I did an interview with Evelyn Perry, who is kind of a folk singer, but she's on the exploring end of of exploring meaning in the world through music. And she did a song called The Northwest Passage Revisited, and I'd like to play a clip of that here in just a moment. But what's important about it is she goes between the Stan Rogers song, Northwest Passage, and she talks about the vagus nerve as it travels all the way throughout the body. That was my first exposure to it. When you talk about the dorsal and the ventral vagus, I was informed a little bit about this from Evelyn Perry. So let's listen to a little little bit of her song, Northwest Passage Revisited. through the human body called the vagus nerve. Also known as the rambler or the wanderer, vagus is the longest nerve in the central nervous system. It wanders from brainstem to colon along the way innervating and connecting the outer ear, the throat, lungs, portions of the viscera, and on its journey back to the voice box, it circles the heart. Northwest Passage Revisited by Evelyn Perry is actually about 20 minutes long, so we just heard a small clip of it where she discusses the vagus nerve as it wanders throughout the body and how this is connected with the sense of well-being, which is something that you, Elaine Duncan, talk about in The Tao of Trauma. It's part of the bridge between Western medicine and acupuncture and Asian medicine. Could you say a few words about what you recognize about both the dorsal and ventral and how that is incorporated in the work you're doing with five element theory? Right, 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 right. Thank you, thank you. So our sympathetic nervous system, which is kind of our mobilized fight or flight function, is always turned on. It's never turned off. It's always on. It needs something to mitigate how far it gets turned on, it, it, to mitigate the, the rheostat that's associated with how much arousal we're going to express. 
in order to for us to have a social engagement capacity. So like a small child who is unable to regulate their sympathetic nervous system will be throwing sand in the face of their, the other kids in the sandbox. They'll be biting and kicking and, and all of that. So we need to cultivate ways to mitigate the arousal in our sympathetic nervous system in order to live in community and in society. So there's two ways to do that. The primary way is with the ventral vagus system. The ventral vagus is essentially the energy of the heart and the lung. It regulates breathing and heart rate, and it influences all the nerves that put the twinkle in our eye that allow us to discern tone of voice and uh, meaning in our hearing and the the muscles that uh, allow us to smile and to make that furrowed brow between our eyebrows up in our forehead. So all of those functions that relate to being able to interpret subtle meaning from another person and navigate relationship. So if someone, for example, a coworker keeps taking pens off your desk and you start to get pissed off about it because you like your pens and you're attached to your pens, it's our ventral vagus that allows us to have a modest amount of arousal that can say to our friend, look, maybe I'm crazy, but it really bothers me when you take my pens. So I bought you a box of pens and you can have the whole box, but I really want to have my pens on my desk. Instead of going, quote unquote, postal, you know, or being passive aggressive in a staff meeting, you know, getting angry over some totally unrelated thing and, and blowing off steam when really what you're angry about is the pens. Happens all the time, right? <laughs> Sounds like you're talking from personal experience. <laughs> <laughs> sure, yeah, of course. So the more we can cultivate a capacity for speaking our truth in the context of relationship, then we can solve problems without violence. But if our ventral vagus system, if our, if our capacity for relationship and connection was snuffed out or suppressed as a small child, if we didn't get the opportunity to experience safety in relationship and navigate challenging circumstances with good and capable and kind and loving guidance from a parent or caregiver, then the only way we can control when we feel that sympathetic arousal, that desire to, to punch someone's lights out because they're in our way, is either for the sympathetic system to take over and for us to commit a violent act, or for our dorsal vagus, the other aspect of the parasympathetic system, to initiate a shutdown of the heart, to become like that possum on your front porch. So there are a lot of us, a lot of trauma survivors, who walk around in what I call a functional freeze state. So they aren't as far gone as that possum, but they tend to be a little disconnected. They may have trouble looking someone in the eye. They may have trouble talking in an intimate way. They may have trouble with intimate relationships because they're navigating their, their sympathetic arousal with a more aggressive kind of shutdown on their heart. So there's this kind of triangle between sympathetic arousal ventral vagal, or you could call it the social engagement system, and the freeze response. And we need to kind of use them in, in a dynamic way that's interconnected in order to have a functional uh, life experience. Does that make sense? 
That's very well said, Elaine. Again, Elaine Duncan, author of The Tao of Trauma, A Practitioner's Guide for Integrating Five-Element Theory and Trauma Treatment. That's the book. There's one more thing I wanted to ask you about, Elaine. I know we have to get off the phone shortly. And that has to do with the work that you started. I mean, where I think you really dove in with trauma was with the people who are coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq they're traumatized by their experience. And in my previous interview with you 10 years ago, back in 2008, you talk about someone you call Joe and his experience. At one point, you you talk about him. He's Christian, but he wants to visit the Dalai Lama to deal with his karma. So he's carrying some kind of trauma from war. And people talk a fair amount about PTSD. And over the last five to 10 years, there's been this largement of this thing called moral injury. And when you're talking about dealing with karma, that sounds like you're dealing with moral injury as opposed to the PTSD. Do you see any difference experientially in the trauma healing you're doing using acupuncture and Asian medicine? Do you see that trauma healing as being at all different internally, somatically? Well, I think from the perspective of a mental health provider, it's an important distinction, moral injury and what's come to be called post-traumatic stress disorder, which we could also talk about because I don't like that, that diagnosis, that term. From the point of view of a regulation or dysregulation in the autonomic nervous system, which is my framework, I think that they're different manifestations of dysregulation. In other words, they're both dysregulation. Moral injury tends to occur in people who had fairly authoritarian family systems where the parent was the authority and there wasn't room for the child to have a thought. So when the parent dictated, do this, there was no time to question, well, I don't believe in that. You know, I don't believe in whatever it is. So that as an adult, then, for instance, in a military setting, when the commanding officer says, turn your head when I'm raping your, your fellow soldier, you turn your head because that's what you were told to do and you believe in authority. And then later in the middle of the night, you come to terms with that isn't really my value system. What have I done? I feel horrible about myself. I have transgressed my own moral compass. And I feel horrible about myself. And that breeds a lot of shame, which is consuming to the ventral vagus system. Shame is consuming to the heart. It's collapsing and consuming to the heart. Very challenging problem. And heart injuries tend to be related to fire. So do you see the symptoms coming out differently? Uh, Someone, again, what's called PTSD or moral injury, do you see it manifesting in different organs and different elements? I think that's a critical distinction that I'm making in the book, that PTSD, which Western science and the, and the diagnostic and statistical manual you know, defines in certain ways, is actually a very limiting diagnosis. It requires that someone have witnessed or experienced a near-death experience when there are a lot of people who experienced a sense of life threat before they had memories before they had a verbal capacity. They have no memory of a life threat. And so they don't quote unquote qualify for the disability rating that they may deserve 
or that may be, may be crediting to them. So I prefer the term trauma spectrum response, which recognizes that trauma is not just the, you know, the bullseye, that there's, there's a range of expressions of dysregulation and that it isn't one thing. And in my book, I describe five different things, five different ways that traumatic stress manifests and five different approaches based on the unique experience of this person for how to help them transform that experience and come into greater regulation. So absolutely, trauma manifests in different ways, moral injury manifests in different ways, depending on the individual's constitution and what they brought to that experience. It's so radical, the idea that we're actually going to look at the individual and we're trying to participate in their healing. <laughs> it's <laughs> right. What a crazy world where that isn't taken into account. That's right. That's right. Well, folks, we've been speaking with Elaine Duncan. In case you don't recognize it, as I say it, Elaine starts with an A. You're probably used to Elaine with an E, but Elaine Duncan, her link is on NordenSpiritRadio.org, and I'll get you to her website, IntegrativeHealingWorks.net, her recent book, The Tao of Trauma, A Practitioner's Guide for Integrating Five-Element Theory and Trauma Treatment. Uh, important addition to that work was with Kathy Kane, and uh, there's a foreword there by an MD, Michael Hollifield. Uh, so this is uh, incorporation of resources that in the West too often we haven't availed ourselves from. And fortunately, Elaine has been doing that with all kinds of people experiencing trauma, including those coming back from war. Elaine, thank you for all of that healing work you've been doing for some decades now and for bringing it to us in a way that can share it with the rest of the world. Remember, folks, on her website, Again, that is integrativehealingworks.net. You'll find her blog, links to her book, and some courses that you can avail yourself of so you can be part of passing the healing into the world. Thank you again, Elaine, for doing that healing. Thank you, Mark. You're wonderful. And I do donate to Northern Spirit Radio and to my local public radio station, and I encourage all your listeners to as well. Thank you for that one up. We need that kind of help. Again, folks, all of this information is on northernspiritradio.org. Thanks to Andrew Jansen for production assistance on today's program. We'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. <laughs>